Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Simon Whitney, the author of From Oversight to Overkill, How Inside the Broken System That Blocks Medical Breakthroughs and How We Can Fix It. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine and happy to be chatting with you, Deidre. Thank you. The first question I want to ask you is, can you tell us a little about yourself and how you got started on this project? Well, it was a two-step process. I was a family doctor in rural Washington State. And while I love being a family doctor, I... I wanted more intellectual challenge. I wanted to grapple with tough ideas and, and tough people. And so I went to Stanford, got my law degree, and uh, spent some time in the Center for Medical Ethics there. That's the part one. Part two is I wanted to do a survey of how physicians feel about physician-assisted suicide, and which involved mailing surveys to these doctors. And my advisor at the law school told me, you can't do this with, without the approval of the IRB. And I said, what's an IRB? And boy, was I ever to learn. We don't hear much about overregulations of medical research that you write about in your book, From Oversight to Overkill. What is the problem and how serious is it? Well, we hear actually a lot about regulation by the FDA. Uh, which regulates drugs, medical devices, and so forth, and vaccines. And the FDA is the giant in the field. The, the field I'm interested in in this book is the IRB system that's run by a different federal agency, OHRP. And OHRP is a tiny agency with a budget in the millions, not the billions like the FDA, and a staff of around 20 to 30 and yet it has amazing power to prevent life-saving research of every possible kind. 
is this power of prevention that people don't know about and they should care about because it, it, it affects the treatments that doctors can give us in ways that are very destructive. What are some of the treatments that you think have not been um, investigated about? Well, one of the problems of this whole area of study is that when a scientist can't do something, they generally move on to something they can do because there are less roadblocks there. I could fill a whole book with scientists saying, oh, I could have done this or I could have done that, but I'm sure they wouldn't let me. But that wouldn't be persuasive. So instead, I looked at scientists who were able to do things, but who were slowed or his research was damaged or delayed and at the result and at the consequences that had. Can you give us some of the examples of how regulation system has held back a lot of medical research? Uh, the best example was from the 1980s. Your older readers, or older listeners, will remember how when we were kids in the 1950s and 60s or whatever, our fathers and uncles and grandparents would drop dead of heart attacks on no notice in their 50s and 60s. And that was just how things were. And then the uh, we start to learn a lot more about heart attacks. And as a result, heart attack fatalities on an age-adjusted basis are much are, are dramatically down nowadays. How do we get there through important research? And one of the big studies was called the ISIS-2 study. <laughs> That's not named after the terrorist group, but after a branch of the River Thames. ISIS-2 said, let's look at some of these clot buster drugs and see if they would actually help a heart attack. So a patient would go into the emergency room have chest pain, short of breath, and the doctor, in theory, would say, would you like to join our research into new ways of treating heart attacks? And that's and then patients would be assigned at random to either get the routine standard treatment or to get the clot buster as well. The setup is pretty simple. You have a heart attack, they try treatment A or B, and they figure out which one works better. Now, in England, the consent process consists of as little as the doctor mentioning, hey, we're doing some research here. If you want to know more, I'm happy to tell you, and then putting you in the trial. Here in the U.S., there was a very elaborate process of consent involving a four-page research form, which cautioned patients, for instance, that aspirin, one of the clot-busting drugs, could, ta- could taste bad when you chewed on it. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm in the ER, lying on a gurney, having chest pain, worried I'm not going to live to see my daughter's graduation, I want to get treatment. And if there's research, I wanted to get started. And I don't want to hear that aspirin might taste bad or that the, or that the federal agencies will protect my privacy to the extent possible under the law or that I have the right to know more about how my information is held and processed. I don't want to know any of these things. I just want to get treatment. I want to get on with things. And if there's research, let me know there's research and I can say yes or no, but I don't need all these details. Now this matters because if there's a long complicated form you have to go through with the patient and the patient isn't in a mood or the doctor thinks the patient won't be receptive, 
that whole topic of research never gets addressed and that patient is not enrolled. And as a result, thousands of US patients who were eligible for the trial were never approached about participation. As a result, the trial took much longer to complete. And here's where we start hitting the un unhappy pay dirt, which is this cumbersome consent form in the US slowed research down internationally so much that the results were delayed by months or maybe even as much as a year. Now, that may not seem like a long time, but over the course of that delay, the, the time from when the research results should have been available until they were available, during that time, hundreds of thousands of people were having heart attacks. Many of them were dying. And many of those could have been saved by the clot-busting drugs. So as a result, we had thousands of people who died who would have lived if the consent process had been as simple in the US as it was in the UK. That's the cost in lives of excessive oversight. You know, with so much attention on medical research by the researchers, federal government, and charities like the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, how could we have gotten into all this mess? Well, it, it, that's one of the interesting parts about this uh, system is that there are no bad guys. Uh, it was built for the best of intentions. Uh, the most dominant factor driving this oversight was the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And in the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, uh, hundreds of black uh, sharecroppers in Alabama were diagnosed with syphilis, and then government doctors very carefully followed them over many years to see what happened to them as a result of having this fatal disease. And in fact, many of them died. The government doctors never treated them. In fact, they blocked them from getting treatment. And when news of this came out in 1972, it shocked the country as it certainly should have. This was the most horrible experiment ever conducted on American soil. It led to the creation of the IRB system. Well, actually, it didn't lead to its creation. It led to it. It led to it becoming locked in the cement of federal law, and it's cited as the moral justification for the system. And I can't argue with that. We don't want to have another Tuskegee experiment. We could never. Nobody would want that. That'd be terrible. And so, in order to avoid this terrible thing from repeating, we have a system that now prevents many wonderful, wonderful things from being done. That's what happens when a regulatory system that we need uh, becomes, but when it bursts free from its bounds and starts doing things it was never intended to do. If you try to make the connection between the failure to treat syphilis and the failure to tell a patient with a heart attack every detail of research that they don't need to know, that was not the goal of the system. The goal of the system was protect research subjects, but to let research continue. Now it still protects research subjects, but research too often cannot continue as it should. A good goal, a bad outcome at present. You know, you started in Chapter 1, Unintended Consequences, by telling us the story of Nathan Fink 
and Henrietta Lacks. Can you tell the audience about those stories and why they're so important? Sure. Uh, Nathan Fink was a patient in the Jewish Chronic Disease Hospital in, uh, in New York. And one day, uh, a doctor he hadn't seen before came by and gave him a small injection of some clear fluid in his, in his thigh. The doctor came back every day for a few days, and the spot in his thigh developed kind of a, a sore lump, and then it went away. The doctor said, you've got good resistance. Nathan was uh, completely unsure what any of this meant until he read in the paper that patients at his hospital had been given injections of live cancer cells to test their ability to, to reject this, uh, this menace. And he had shown a good ability to reject live cancer cells. He had never consented to this experiment, and he was livid and had called, <laughs> called the newspapers and filed a suit. That was one of the uh, experiments that prompted the development of the IRB system even before Tuskegee came into view. The second experiment was Henrietta Lacks. And Henrietta Lacks, of course, was the subject of a wonderful book by Rebecca Skloot, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And Skloot chronicles in great detail how, well, what Lacks had was she had cervical cancer. She was treated at Johns Hopkins. They took part of the biopsy of her cancer and gave it to a researcher at Johns Hopkins who was trying to develop a way to keep human cells alive in a test tube. And people had tried, been trying to do it for years, and they just couldn't. The cells would live for a day or a few days and then just die. And no matter what you put in the test tube, what kind of, kind of nutrients and other life-encouraging substances, it didn't work. The cells died. Henrietta Lacks' cells were different. They were very avid for life, and they kept growing and thriving. And they made possible much of the medical research that's happened in the last 50 years, because if you have living human cells in a test tube, you can do so many things you couldn't do with people, because people are just much more complicated to deal with than cells in a test tube. Now, Lax's problems were not related to her cells. Um, she would have died of her cancer in any case. The point Sloot makes is that Lax was uh, never asked if her cells could be used for this, and she, her family was never given any part of the multi-million dollar proceeds from this experimentation. And Sloot is right about that. What she doesn't address is the fact that the system set up to protect people from being um, being abused or taken advantage of the way Henry Alex was. <clears throat> the IRB system has now become so overgrown that it prevents normal, benign, harmless research that would help us all and that would save lives. So there's a downside to, to Slutz's story of the development of the IRB and that's the story that I tell here. There is such a thing as too much protection, and we have it now. Now, a lot of scientists are complaining about the IRB oversight. What are some of the complaints they are making? Uh, they complain, number one, that it costs time. And 
it can cost two or three or four months to get approval for a project. If you want to make a change, you may have, have to wait the same amount of time again. These months come while the scientists' grants are running. And if you have a time-limited grant to do an important research and the IRB takes 10% of that time arbitrarily, that's not a good thing. It's also expensive. Uh, and the review process sometimes results in changes that scientists don't like. I love Rob Knight for this because Rob Knight is a chemist. He was the University of Colorado. And he wanted to study how, um, how microorganisms are spread from one person's skin to another. This is part of the microbiome. The microbiome, as, you re as our listeners probably know, consists of the microorganisms, the bacteria and fungi and other cells that live on and in the human body and that are essential for life. And Knight studies the microbiome and he wanted to see how cells were passed from one ordinary healthy person to another by rubbing a Q-tip over the, over the mouth or over the skin of one patient, not, not a patient, a regular person, and then rubbing on the skin of another person and to see if some or all the microbiome was transferred. And if so, how long that took and what kind of cells were transferred successfully. Now, this is the kind of thing that happens every day when you give somebody a kiss on the, on the cheek or you shake hands or you just pat somebody's neck. You're sharing cells all the time with people around you. In fact, if you've got a family dog, you and your dog share cells. And that's probably good for you and probably good for the dog. Uh, so Knight wanted to learn more about this process, and he submitted the request to the University of Colorado IRB, and they said, well, this, is, uh, this raises serious concerns about infection. Uh, one, one of your subjects might contract uh, AIDS from this. Isn't that something we sh you should caution your subjects about in the consent form? And this was in the 2000s. And uh, Knight said, oh, well, we, I understand your concern. Many people think AIDS can be spread through casual touch. Uh, fortunately, we've known for years now that that is not true. And the University of Colorado has somebody who's an expert in this area. He'd be happy to come around to your next meeting and educate you about how AIDS is not transmitted. Uh, and the, uh, the IRB these IRBs are composed of people who are usually on the faculty at the institution. The, most of the University of Colorado IRB members, like most IRB members everywhere, are educated, smart professionals, many of them medical professionals. Some of them probably treat infections in their ordinary medical practice. But they went, when they went into that conference room, somehow they convinced themselves that AIDS could be spread by touching, which they knew outside of the conference room, was ridiculous. They backed off and said, okay, we give up about AIDS, but you can still spread smallpox. Well, smallpox has been extinct in the wild since 1979, when WHO, the World Health Organization, declared it extinct. This news had not reached Boulder, Colorado. And so Knight said, I will just tell my subjects that if they don't engage in time travel, or international espionage, which would involve getting to the uh, 
to stores the smallpox vaccine held in secure conditions in Atlanta and in Moscow or the Soviet Union somewhere. If they don't engage in time travel or international espionage, they should be safe. So the IRB was satisfied with that, let his research go. But what had his time spent arguing with the IRB done? What had the time lost from his grant cost him? These costs are not considered by the system, and yet they add up. The, the AIDS and smallpox example is really foolish, uh, but the result is really serious because when research has slowed down and made more difficult and made more expensive, we are all the losers. Now, you talk about Frederick Cole uh, in your book. Tell us that story. <laughs> Frederick Cole is one of the most marvelous clinicians I know. Uh, he graduated from medical school in the 1960s. Uh, he specialized in kidney stones, and he's been treating patients at the University of Chicago Kidney Stone Clinic uh, for many, many years. Now, one of the things he's particularly interested in is how our bodies protect us against getting kidney stones or how they fail to do so. And to do that, he looks at the proteins in the urine of patients who form stones and the urine of patients who do not. So all he needs to do his research, this particular kind of research, is somebody's leftover urine. Since he's in a nephrology lab, that's a kidney disease lab, there's plenty of leftover urine at the end of the day. And back in the day, back in the 1970s, 1980s, uh, there were IRBs, but they had no interest whatsoever in what Co did with the patient's left with the patient's urine left lying around in beakers on his lab benches when the clinic shut down for the day. He could throw it away. He could use it for research. They really didn't care. Today's IRB cares, and they care a lot about whether the patients who are going to give Co their urine to be used for research have been fully informed about their rights and privileges under the law of the United States and the regulations that govern the IRBs. And so Co or his staff have to get consent from patients to use their leftover urine in specific ways. It's this, this has a faint echo of the Henrietta Lacks story, right? Because there Johns Hopkins used her biopsy results without her permission. Now Co can't use somebody's leftover urine without their permission. The result is paperwork that nobody reads, a delay that nobody wants, and as a result of that, treatments that aren't developed. And when treatments aren't developed, people end up in the ER with kidney stone pain in agony, they get narcotics, and this is not a happy story because some of those patients who get narcotics for kidney stones have never had a problem with narcotics in the past, and some of them go on to become addicted. So these, these foolish questions by the IRB end up having serious implications for people who have ordinary medical problems and just need better care. It's very interesting how you see that that can lead to addiction and that can lead to other social problems in our society. Oh, yes. If the problem is as bad as you say, why isn't it better known? 
Well, one reason is because the system is completely, is, is so obscure, most doctors have never heard of it. Because the people who are complaining, the researchers who complain, are the doctors who work in major medical centers and are doing research. If you're getting your care in any ordinary clinic in the country, your doctors are unaware of how the treatments that they administer are developed. It's just not part of what they need to know. If they work in a major medical center, then they're very aware of this, but there are not enough of those doctors to raise enough of a ruckus to, to, make, to make the problem become one that's uh, come to the attention of people nationally. So it, it's, it's an obscure problem. And furthermore, it's a hard problem to argue about because if you say um, there was the Tuskegee syphilis experiment and a system was set up to prevent it from happening again, and now that system has gone overboard as preventing all kinds of important research, a lot of people will say, well, we don't want another Tuskegee. That sounds like the system is an important safeguard and we should keep it. Well, we need a safeguard, yes, but we don't need this safeguard. We don't need to be protected within an inch of our lives. We need a reasonable system, and this system once was reasonable, and it can be reasonable again. Now, you tell us about the summer of love and the medical issues that followed. Can you tell the audience about those health conditions and what went on? Well, the summer of love in San Francisco was in the 1960s. That was when the public health service was trying to stamp out syphilis, gonorrhea, and other infectious diseases. And uh, Peter Buxton was a field worker for the public health service in San Francisco. And he would get a report every morning saying, here are your follow-ups for the day. And he would have a name and an address. He'd go to one of San Francisco's CD or districts. He'd go down the hallway and bang on the door. And when somebody answered, they weren't always happy to see him when he said he was from the health department, but he would explain they had syphilis and they needed a treatment. And they might say, you know, I had this funny rash when I went to the clinic, but it's gone now. I'm all better. Thank you. Buxton would say, no, you don't understand. Before you kick me out, let me explain. This syphilis is serious stuff. And even though you feel fine now, it may come back in a year or five years and it may kill you. It may infect your, your spouse or your partner and it may infect a woman's children. So this syphilis needs to be treated. So when Buxton in the 1960s learned that the public health service had an experiment ongoing in Alabama that, that identified people with syphilis and refused to get them treatment. He, he couldn't believe what, his, his, what he heard, but it was true. The same public health service that was treating people in San Francisco was not treating people in Alabama. And Buxton tried his very best to get, a, to get the public health service to back off. Uh, the Centers for Disease Control was running the experiment by that time, and he talked to the CDC and they refused to stop the experiment. They said, this is important research and we couldn't do it again. The public would not stand for it. Well, <laughs> when the public found out about it, thanks to Buxton's efforts, the public agreed they couldn't stand for it. And 
That's how the story of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment came to life. Peter Buxton's a real-life American hero. He's still alive and he's received many awards. And somebody that brave who will speak out, even, even when everybody says, you don't know what you're talking about, this normal science, uh, I just admire him to the ends of the earth. Yes. Now, what should a well-run regulation system look like? Ah, that's such a good question because it's a far more general question than just the IRB system as, as a whole. Every regulatory system should aim to balance two goals because if there's only one goal, you don't need regulation. There's no regulation requiring people to breathe because although it'd be very harmful if we stop, people are breathing on their own just fine. Regulatory systems balance two competing social goals. So in the case of the IRB system, one goal is to prevent abusive research, and that's important. The other goal should be permit research that is not abusive to continue unimpeded. That's where the IRB system fails. It's because it has shut down or caused serious obstacles to replace the research of all kinds, uh, obstacles far more serious than they need to be. This harms research, harms us, but it shouldn't be part of the agency, agency's mission of balancing safe research with effective research. That balancing is what's been lost. Is there anything our listeners should do? Well, you mentioned the breast cancer research advocacy early on. And our listeners who give to breast cancer research or prostate cancer research to be gender inclusive uh, should know that some of their contribution goes not to research, but to research oversight and to pay the people who put these obstacles in the way of their own researchers. So charities like the Breast Cancer Foundations and institutions like the NIH are all paying money first to scientists to do research and then to regulators to slow that research down. It's ridiculous. And if people knew how much of their money went to oversight that just harms research, they would be shocked. I, I like to think, and maybe I'm just a dreamer, that if Congress really learned how federal and private money is being wasted, and the result is people don't get treatments they need and deserve, that, pol that politicians of every political stripe would say, aha, this is a problem that we can do something about, and they might take an afternoon off from fighting each other and pass a bill revising this system, that they can go back to their fights, and I wish them good luck with that. That sounds like a great plan. Now, I've taken up enough of your time. I wonder if you could tell us about the next project you will be working on. Uh, well, I, you know, it's, it's funny you should ask. I, I'm not sure what I'm going to do next. Uh, part, one of the realities of my life is I'm 75, and things keep going wrong in my body. I get a digestion problem. I get a joint problem. I get a lung problem. And, and so far, these are all treatable. You know, I had cancer of the bladder, and that was treated, and I'm doing fine. Uh, but you notice that your body becomes less reliable. And you know what this is going to end up with, which is you're going to end up dying. And there are lots of books about how to um, 
how to live longer and thrive longer and have a brilliant, vivacious life, even when you're in your declining years. I'm not interested in that kind of stuff. I'm interested in trying to figure out how to hold off the incessant march of new illnesses and new weaknesses in the aging body. From the point of view of a family doctor who's seen this from the other side, there are lots of self-help books about aging, and I'm not sure if this one is needed, uh, but I'm playing with the idea. I think I might do that. Well, we'll be looking forward to that project. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And again, we've been talking with Simon Whitley, the author of Oversight to Overkill. Thank you. Thank you, Deidre. It's been a pleasure.